the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'll be looking at the government's decision to loosen pay restrictions for bailed out Irish banks with Joe Brennan of the Irish Times. And in the second half of the show, I'll be joined by our technology columnist, Carolyn Lillington, to discuss the latest fine imposed by the Data Protection Commission on Meta, the owner of social media platform Facebook and the WhatsApp messaging service. These fines amount to more than 900 million euro. So is Mark Zuckerberg beginning to feel some financial pain? But first to the government-sponsored banking review published on Tuesday. It includes a number of recommendations covering pay and bonuses, access to cash services and regulations. Joe Brennan joined me for this portion of the show and I began by asking him to outline the main recommendations in the report. Yeah, so the um, banking uh, report there, uh, published there on Tuesday, is on foot of a year-long piece of work carried out by members of the Department of Finance on behalf of the the Minister for Finance. He asked them a year ago under pressure from opposition and from unions to carry out a broad ranging review of the state of banking, just given the uh, the nature of just the pace at which banking has changed in the last decade or so. Was, um, going into the review, we saw that Ulster Bank and KBC Bank Ireland had both decided to quit the Irish market. We saw returns in the sector across the board had been very low for a number of years due to kind of low credit demand and high capital requirements on behalf of regulators and, and a prevailing kind of period of, of low interest rates. So coming out of that review, it was it's a 200-page-plus it's a review. I suppose the part that kind of grabs the headlines is the issue of remuneration because it was an issue that we did not expect a minister who is in his final weeks as Minister for Finance before he heads over to uh, the expected move to uh, the Department of Public Expenditure and swap jobs with with Michael McGrath there. It was kind of unexpected he would move on remuneration given there had been such a thorny topic and remain so. And there's never a good time to move on remuneration, but he decided to move this time within the kind of uh, limits of what is allowed by law. So we had restrictions going back to uh, 2008 post the Guarantee of Irish Banks, where you had the government of the day basically impose a restriction of about 500,000 pay cap on banks and also ban uh, variable pay or bonuses across the board. A few years later, in 2010, the government of that day, as Ireland was actually heading into an international bailout, and a senior banker in AIB had brought a successful case to the uh, High Court, which basically uh, allowed him to receive a bonus that he actually um, had been awarded before the banking crash in 2008. But we were heading into an expensive time for AIB post the uh, international bailout. And the government of that day, uh, led by the finance minister, Brian Lenhan, decided to put into law, into the Finance Act 2011, a super tax of 89% on bonuses in excess of uh, 20,000. And that remains in, in, in place. So the recommendation from the banking review and the recommendations being taken up by the government is to allow for variable pay or bonuses across the uh, the bailed out banks up to 20,000, which is the threshold after which the uh, the super tax kind of kicks in and also removes, so the decision is to remove the, for Bank of Ireland, which is no longer, the state no longer holds any shares in after the state sold its remaining shares in September. 
the decision has been taken to remove any uh, government say in executive pay. Now, there had been a 500,000 kind of general cap across the board, across uh, all of the banks. Bank of Ireland has had leeway around that at minister discretion uh, over the past decade or so, where you saw the exiting chief executive, Francesca McDonough, exiting on a pay of 960,000. And the new chief executive, uh, Miles O'Grady, also being installed on, on that level as well. Sure. And uh, Richie Boucher was on a package of that kind of level uh, when he was CEO. And exactly. Course, he was part of the bank, one of the executives in the bank. At the time of the crash, he was probably the only survivor, certainly one of the few survivors um, uh, post-crash in, in terms of executives who remained. So just to be clear, bonuses are allowed now up to 20k. Yes. Uh, after 20k, I mean, you can pay a bonus, presumably. You, you can, but, but you're going to get a 90%, almost 90% tax. Almost 90% so it's prohibitive. tax, so it's prohibitive. Who's going to bother? Uh, and for Bank of Ireland, the pay restrictions have been lifted uh, entirely, although that super tax applies to any Bank of Ireland. Remains in case. Uh, uh, executives. Uh, which is interesting, inter- isn't it? Because what right does the government have to impose a super tax like that on a private institution that has no state shareholding, no state involvement in it whatsoever, when you think that presumably, you know, executives in Ulster Bank and KBC, for example, have been able to uh, have been able to earn handsome bonuses, haven't they? Yeah. And indeed, you know, Citigroup and all of the other IFSC banks uh, that are around the place presumably aren't subjected to this tax. So why should Bank of Ireland executives at this point well, be subject There is to no it? political will, either in government and certainly just given the makeup we have of the doll at the moment and the way the opinion polls are going, there is no political appetite to address that. There was no sunset clause put into that 89% tax and I think it's intractable. I can't see any government going to the Oireachtas for the foreseeable future saying we want to remove that. So I think that is in place. And it does put banks at a disadvantage. And I suppose one of the disadvantages here is that, okay, you can award variable pay up to 20 grand to uh, individuals. That doesn't really have a major effect on executives. And we've seen kind of changes in EU kind of rules around bonuses post the crash as well. We saw crazy bonuses at a multiple of, of, of fixed pay where that has now been fixed at two times. So variable pay is fixed at two times uh, salary. Uh, and half of that has to be awarded in, in, in shares. So there is the long-term performance of the company should be reflected in the share performance and that has a, a, an impact there. But the problem here is that if you are restricted in providing bonuses to or variable pay to senior executives, but the restriction on, on fixed pay has been removed, the impulse there is to increase the fixed part. And if you are an investor in a bank in which the fixed pay is higher and there isn't so much reliance on variable pay, you would look at that with a jaundice view. Mm. And no sense from Bank of Ireland that they're going to seek to challenge that? No. So Bank of Ireland have sent out a note in the last hour or so to, to staff and they're saying they're looking at, obviously they're looking at the review, but they don't see variable pay being a feature in any of the pay until 2024 at the earliest. Okay. And 2024, of course, could be uh, could be an election year. Yeah. And again, I mean, they can appeal, but I mean, it's still it's still law. So uh, this has to be this has to be voted down by the it has to be repealed by the Oireachtas. Yeah, sure. Now, there are some other elements as well uh, in terms of healthcare and other benefits that the banks are now going to be allowed to pay their executives. Yeah, Tell us I suppose it was little known that while the bonuses were banned, also kind of fringe benefits such as healthcare and childcare subsidies were also banned uh, since the outset. Car benefits, presumably, as well. 
would all would all fall within that. Yeah. So that's to be lifted as part of that as well. But I suppose pay is only one part of it's probably the the the, the kind of the headline topic, but it's only one part of the overall review. Before we move on yeah. to that, Joe, have you been in touch with the banks? Is there any sense that they're going to move immediately on giving, let's say, AIB giving Colin Hunt a twenty grand bonus uh, next year? Uh, no, they're all saying and a healthcare package, etc. Yeah. So they're going through. Uh, they're going through the the, the, the banking f- federation, the BPFI, which is the lobby group, uh, and they're saying they're reviewing. The banks are individually reviewing it. Uh, the only bank I've seen where they've communicated to staff. Uh, is is Bank of Ireland at this stage, which has said that it'll be 2024 before they'll be in a position to award any variable uh, pay to uh, staffers. Now, Pierce Saherty was on Morning Ireland on RTE uh, talking about this whole bonus issue. Sinn Féin obviously doing very well in the polls at the moment. As it stands, it looks as if um, they could well be part of the next government. So uh, their view on all of this is very interesting. He was very strong in it. Now, he's been finance spokesman for a long number of years, so he knows his onions on this uh, topic. And he said that in the current inflationary environment and the cost of living crisis that people are experiencing at the moment, the government was tone deaf to lift this uh, ban on bonuses for uh, bankers at AIB and, and, and permanent TSB, and I presume he meant Bank of Ireland as well. And yes, uh, Pascal ha- has done this in, in the sort of last couple of weeks of his time as, as Minister for Finance. Why has he chosen to move on it now when he's had... Various yeah. recommendations, hasn't he, over the last yeah, year I mean, or he's, two? He's been well, two and a half years ago, three and a half years ago. He was sitting on. He's been sitting on a recommendation from a consultation. Somebody put out a consultation to the executive search firm uh, Corn Ferry, and that was brought. He decided to, to do that to stop AIB from voting through uh, the idea of variable pay being introduced in AIB itself. Um, and he decided as a, as a kind of a stopgap to hire Corn Ferry to look at the whole area of remuneration. And we know that the Corn Ferry report, which was never published and has been gathering dust ever since, had been calling for an easing of the restrictions. And an additional kind of fig leaf was offered by the central bank around that stage um, as Philip Lane, who was the then governor of the central bank, as he was leaving um, the central bank in 2019, he wrote a letter basically saying there was some merit in reintroducing variable pay into the remuneration structure of, of banks as, uh, as well. Yeah, look, at um, of course, there are no votes in awarding higher pay to bankers or awarding bonuses. And you would expect that the leader, uh, the, the opposition and the finance spokesperson of the opposition to be very much against something like this when there are no votes on this. And indeed, the government of the day, uh, there is no, no one willingly would like to go down the route of having headlines coming up to Christmas uh, when banks are increasing interest rates, albeit following on from official policy to increase interest rates, and when households are dealing with the, the, the cost of living crisis, to see a government push through an initiative to uh, restore uh, bonuses, albeit yeah. within a cap for bankers, and lift in the case of Bank of Ireland, and what will be the case for the other two banks once a state stake falls below a certain threshold to lift the 500,000 cap on, on, on executive fixed pay. Yeah, it doesn't sound good, does it? Now, you mentioned a 200-page report. Um, lots of other recommendations in there. What are they saying, for example, in relation to access to cash and bank branches? Because there was 
Uh, earlier this year, AIB announced that they were going to close a lot of uh, bank branches and there essentially would have been no access to cash in those communities. It created a huge storm. AIB was forced to reverse that decision. So what's in the review about that type of thing? Yeah, look, we've seen, obviously, we've seen access to cash kind of diminish in the last 10 years or so as a number of overseas banks and now the final two overseas retail banks are departing the market. And we've also seen bank closures right across the, mm. across the board for the existing banks. And AIB, as you mentioned there, was looking over the summer to remove cash access across 70 of its branches, including to the extent that not even ATMs would be there to actually uh, uh, accept or pay out cash. So, yeah, we've seen other countries. We've seen a a sharp fall off in terms of uh, cash usage uh, in the last 10 years. And that's only been accelerated by the pandemic. And we've seen a huge increase, obviously, in terms of tap and go uh, in terms of, of payments and people using cards and digital payments. But there are still people, and as AIB learned itself, uh, just given the outcry, the public outcry when it announced the uh, the move to uh, get out of cash in those those branches. There are and so many people across the country that still rely on cash and still use cash in their day-to-day lives. And we've seen other countries, such as the UK. The UK is pushing through legislation to allow its kind of financial authority, the, the, the financial conduct authority, to have oversight over kind of cash services and, and try and give the the FCA some sort of kind of say in terms of cash network um, throughout throughout the UK. Similarly, we've seen a move in, in Sweden along those lines as well last year. The government here has taken up a recommendation from the review uh, team to publish heads of bill n- next year uh, to try and find some way of making sure that the industry in general meets a certain kind of reasonable level in terms of cash access. Now, what a reasonable level is needs to be kind of uh, teased out as as various stakeholders take part in those conversations. But the initial kind of aim is to have at least cash levels throughout the economy along the lines of what is currently a, 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 the, the cash levels in, in the market at the moment. Mm. Do you think that will calm nerves about, you know, bank services being withdrawn around the country? Well, see, again, um, the minister is very clear. He doesn't have any targets for branches, uh, for, for banks, and, and says it'd be dangerous to do so because if you that would not encourage other banks to come into the market. Not that there are many universal banks looking to get into the Irish market at the moment, if not the opposite. There is kind of a suggestion of shared services where you may have a hub and a number of banks would have individuals in the one building. That's one kind of suggestion. But this really is something that needs to be teased out over the coming years. Mm. What about fostering competition? Because as you mentioned, Ulster Bank and KBC are exiting the market. So effectively, we're only going to have three high street banks, uh, Bank of Ireland, AIB and permanent TSB, a number of non-bank lenders. But even they've retreated a little bit because of the interest rate environment. It makes it much tougher for them to operate in a market such as this. So anything in, the, in there about potentially bringing in new competition? I suppose, I mean, one conclusion that the, the report comes to, uh, and it's one thing they had to look at, they had to look at the area of competition, and it concluded there's a reasonable level of competition in the market in, in most areas. The two areas where it says maybe competition is more limited than in others is in overdrafts and in savings for consumers. 
In terms of SMEs, there's also access to various non-bank lenders uh, alongside consumers or they have access to, to, to mortgage non-bank lenders. The one concern they would have, and the one concern the government is looking to act on, is that some of these non-bank lenders are not subject to regulation. And one of the recommendations is that they, I think it's about $2 billion out of the $6 billion out to SMEs in Ireland today are uh, are doled out by uh, firms that are not regulators. So, so what does that mean, Joe, in effect for those SMEs? Does that mean that these non-bank lenders can ride roughshod over the SME not in terms of enforcing their, they're, yeah, they their don't, own? They're, they're not subject to regulations in, in Ireland, so they could because there's nothing to stop them. Obviously, there's competition, so uh, and they're part of the competitive landscape and they wouldn't get business if they were behaving like that. But, but still... The central bank has no mandate to, uh, to to regulate these. But just going back to competition, um, yeah, so it says there's a kind of a reasonable level of competition in the Irish market. One area that's been highlighted, and was highlighted by the IMF as well and by the review, is the whole area of... One of the kind of one of the areas that's kind of seen as a restriction in terms of new mortgage providers coming into the market is how difficult it is to get hold of collateral when individuals uh, don't pay their mortgage. And and one area that they've they have kind of called for and and obviously it'll be acted on is a kind of looking for a more kind of coordinated kind of approach from the departments of finance, justice, the insolvency service, the central bank to try and kind of resolve the whole long-term arrears problem. I mean, we are still in a situation, I think central bank figures out there recently, said as of late last year, half of the 27,000 cases of mortgages that are more than one year in arrears, the borrowers did not make any payments in the last two years. Um, so that's something that needs to be addressed. Now, while overall non-performing loans have come down dramatically in, in recent times and are approaching levels that are in line with the EU average around 3% or so, we're still facing a situation where we have a cost of living crisis, we have rising interest rates, we have a slowing economy, uh, where we are going to inevitably see an increase in non-performing loans um, for, for banks. So that's one area in terms of competition that they, they see that really needs to be addressed. Take us on a whistle stop with some of the other recommendations. Yeah, so um, other recommendations. Another interesting one is that the central bank, I mean, look at the central bank has been uh, accused of, you know, applying onerous kind of um, processes when it comes to vetting uh, companies looking to either come into the Irish market or expand. And it's called for the central bank to be fairly clear, very clear to uh, market participants about its processes and its timings in terms of adjudicating on uh, applications for, 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 for regulated activities. And also it's calling on the central bank to, when it's looking to introduce new uh, regulations, to carry out a robust assessment of the costs and the benefits of the planned regulation and also to publish that as well. So that's an interesting development as well. Okay, now just a few other things. You mentioned earlier that Bank of Ireland, we no longer have shares in Bank of Ireland. And this year, our stakes in both AIB and permanent TSB have reduced. And the government has signalled that it will continue to sell shares uh, in AIB uh, in the period ahead. So uh, how long more, Joe, do you think before we're we're out of those banks um, or even in a minority shareholding situation in those two banks? Yeah, just before I get there, um, just in terms of the 500,000 cap and the plans to remove that in those two banks, uh, the minister has said that um, they'll be removed once the stakes fall to appropriate levels. What he did not, that? exactly. He did not answer what those appropriate levels. He said that's up to the government of the day and clearly he won't be Minister for Finance 
when that decision is is taken. But just in terms of where the banks are, so the government um, at the beginning of this year held uh, about 71% of AIB, has been selling down shares over the, the last number of months. Is down to a stake of about 57%. The expectation is they're in a lock-up period at the moment, having kind of placed a 5% sta- five percentage point stake uh, there recently. They're in a lock-up period until around Christmas. So it'll be early next year, early before they're in the market to sell more shares. But I think the expectation is that, you know, over the course of the first half of next year, that the uh, stake in AIB uh, will fall below 50%. It's probably a bit longer for permanent TSB um, as part of, Permanent TSB is taking over a huge part of Ulster Bank's loan book as part payment for those loans from the parent of Ulster Bank, which is uh, NatWest. They're accepting an almost 17% stake in permanent TSB as part payment. There is an agreement between both the government here, which owns uh, 63.5%, and NatWest, the owner of Ulster Bank, that they would coordinate and work together as they reduce their their stakes in, in, in permanent TSB. I think that's kind of more long-tailed. I imagine it'll be 2024 before we see any shares being sold in that bank, albeit depending on how it performs. Um, as, and as on the economy it, it, and so on. Exactly. As well. Yeah. So where to from here in terms of these recommendations? What are what are the timelines? Various timelines. I mean, there's going to be work here for uh, officials in the Department of Finance for years to come. Uh, most of the recommendations involve more work to be done and recommendations, you know, involving other organisations and other bodies as well that will take years, uh, years to, to, to sort out as well. One of the big kind of pieces of work um, that they're looking to do in to start next year and complete by 2024 is a kind of review of the overall Irish kind of payment system and trying to map out, albeit when the kind of sand is shifting internationally in terms of payments and where that's going, but try to map out as much as possible um, the evolution of the of the payments kind of uh, system in Ireland over, over the coming years. And with Ulster Bank and KBC exiting the market, a lot of people are talking about how, how difficult they found it to switch their accounts to other lenders. Is there anything in there about making switching easier? Yeah, yeah. So one of the recommendations is to try and kind of make switching easier and kind of streamline that. And obviously the, the, the switching code that was set up by the central bank was never designed for a situation where the two main international banks were leaving with one million accounts having to move or be closed as a result of that. And we've seen a number of, of, of cases where people have found it very difficult to get the uh, to get appointments in the in the receiving banks um, to, to set up accounts there. And also a number of people found the switching uh, code itself was kind of ineffective, so they had to go about doing it themselves. And that involves manually changing all the direct debit mandates and their standing orders and all of that. Uh, just wondering, Joe, with the uh, pay restrictions being lifted off Bank of Ireland's back, is there any chance, do you think, that they might go and maybe poach some staff from AIB or permanent TSB now because they have a bit more flexibility? Well, that's a, that's certainly an issue that AIB and permanent TSB would have. You know, it's one thing, you know, being a bank that is at a competitive disadvantage versus kind of the international banks that have been uh, based in Ireland. And that includes the wholesale banks that are in the IFSC. But now they're competing against another bailed-out bank, which has had those restrictions lifted. So yes, certainly the, the, you can imagine the boards of those banks are none too pleased to see one of their own, albeit one that actually has 
paid back the the government bailout now no longer be subject to that 500k uh, uh, level and of course there will be natural kind of competition dynamics at play there when Bank of Ireland is the only one that's actually allowed to pay above the 500k for for, for executives. Yeah, we should say that Davy and Goodbody stockbrokers, both owned now by uh, Bank of Ireland and, and AIB respectively, they're, they're not subject to, to these uh, No, so they were acquired in the last year or so and part of the deals for those acquisitions was that variable pay would remain in place for both of those institutions and certainly AIB has been loss making in recent times and it has, has guided its own staff not to expect bonuses anytime time soon. And that's one of the things about variable pay. You can actually pull it right back uh, and cut down your costs that way without affecting uh, people's kind of uh, fixed income or their their, their uh, contracted income. Other than Pierce Sardi, what other reactions are out there? Yeah, so the FSU um, is... Uh, financial Services Union. Yes, Trade Financial Services, yeah. Bank. So they've welcomed the uh, 20,000, uh, the introduction of uh, variable pay up to 20,000 uh, 20, euros. I mean, that's that's in line with their their members. They would say that their members are at a disadvantage versus people working for other sectors or even in the banking sector elsewhere. So they, they, they've come out in favour of that. Banking and Payments, uh, the Bank and Payments uh, Federation of Ireland um, have said it's an important first step. So uh, they would be looking for uh, the uh, super tax at some stage to be removed. There is no prospect of that happening anytime soon. Uh, and finally, Joe, what's going to happen to the bank levy, which has been in place now for a number of years, but with Ulster Bank and KBC exiting the market, has put a, an additional burden, potentially at least, on Bank of Ireland AIB and uh, Permanent TSB? Yeah, so that's been kind of left hanging. Uh, the Minister for Finance said uh, when he announced Budget 2023 there at the end of September that he would he was extending the levy by another year to the end of next year, but that he would look at the the, the long-term future of the levy uh, as a result of the, the banking review. And the banking review has come out with no clear recommendation on that. It's, it's highlighted the, the pros and cons of having the levy. Obviously, it's, it's a money-raising mechanism, but it is, you know, now it, it there were five banks that were paying it. Now it's down to three, and that would put them at a competitive disadvantage uh, to other banks in the market uh, by continuing that. And if you were to extend the levy to other companies that were coming into the market, that would be a, a restriction for, uh, for for other companies, other banks, to try and come into the market as well. So they've highlighted that issue. But it's something that's been left hanging uh, as a result of this report. There's no clear recommendation on that. So the sum being raised was $150 million a year. It's less than that now. It's less than $100 million now. Yeah, it? it's, it's about $87 million. Mm. Um, That's the current kind of run rate after Ulster Bank and KBC, even though it's on the basis of deposit and on the basis of kind of uh, DIRT, which is the, the, the tax that's based on deposits, even though both continue to have uh, large levels of deposits. The decision was made last year to remove Ulster Bank and, and KBC from uh, paying that levy as of the start of this year. Okay. Joe Brennan, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Carlin Lillington about the fine imposed this week by the Data Protection Commission on Meta. At EY... Our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com.
Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now, at the start of the week, the Data Protection Commission here announced that it was fining social media giant Meta 265 million euro for violating European privacy rules. This takes total penalties against the company to a staggering 910 million euro in just 14 months. Earlier this week, Carlin Lillington, technology columnist with the Irish Times, joined me by phone to discuss the latest fine and whether it might have any impact on Meta's business strategy. Okay, they seem to have not adequately protected data of Meta users, which would include things like names, phone numbers, and email addresses collated together from hackers being able to scrape them off the website. So it's a kind of a similar thing that we've seen in several of these different data breaches where hackers go in exploit some vulnerability in in certain features of a website and then they're able to collect data. And in this case, the data of over 500 million people, which is just a staggering number of, of people, was made available initially um, with somebody, a hacker tried to sell it on the dark web and then it was made available for free. Um, so anybody could download this data. And this this apparently was done between 2018 and 2019, a time period during which uh, Meta was apparently, um, you know, the argument is that they knew that there was a problem there. They themselves said, yes, we patched it by later on in 2019. And initially they were also stating that this um, time period didn't actually, for this data, didn't fall under the GDPR and therefore wasn't subject to this kind of oversight. Um, but it turns out it did overlap into 2019 and periods of 2018 when it was subject to GDPR, hence the enormous fine. Yeah, now what has Meta or Facebook been saying about this? They've come out saying that they're, uh, the usual thing that they're looking at the decision... <laughs> They're examining it. And they did acknowledge that there, they knew that there was a problem there and that they had patched it. But we don't really know how they're going to respond further. Although if they go on um, previous form, as they have with previous large fines, they won't pay it and they will instead um, appeal it, which is their right as well under GDPR. I mean, they haven't paid the WhatsApp fine. I mean, these these big fines like WhatsApp and and uh, uh, the Instagram fine, which is also a massive one. That one is four hundred and five million, which they were um, fined um, a while back. They they tend to sort of say we'll look at it, and then they throw teams of lawyers at it. They try to appeal it, and. Um, they kind of hang there in limbo while we wait to see whether they will actually pay it in the end. Now, it's interesting that you said more than 500 million uh, people, a staggering number, had their data potentially uh, compromised. The fine is 265 million, so that's less than 50 cent per person, as it were. <laughs> uh, I know that's a crude, crude way of working it out, but it doesn't, seem, it doesn't seem like very much in the grand scheme of things, but I'm not sure how they work out these fines. I don't know either. I mean, I, I suppose one of the notable, notable things about this particular fine is that um, 
it was put by the DPC in Ireland, who has been, of course, um, very publicly criticized internationally for fines being too small and penalties not being strict enough on some of these massive con- companies with these um, huge, huge revenue flows um, for not having creating adequate punishments for some of these um, problems. And this time, uh, this particular fine went straight into, um, you know, under the one-stop shop format, went before that uh, was put to the other data protection uh, uh, officials in various countries across the EU, and they had agreed that this was an appropriate step. So I think, and it was a very significant fine. People might remember that um, previously there have been real questions like the over, say, the initial WhatsApp fine, was, which was dated back to September 21, I think. Um, And that was around the sharing of data between Facebook slash Meta and um, WhatsApp, which is another messaging, another platform that they own, the the very popular messaging platform. And they were fined for sharing data when they weren't supposed to be sharing data. Facebook says, is still claiming they didn't share data, that that's not what they are correct. That's not what they're being fined for. And they're appealing. They did appeal that. So, yeah, it's it's probably worth just running through the penalties. So we've mentioned the latest one, um, but there was a 405 million euro fine in September for violations of children's privacy on Meta's Instagram service. A 17 million fine against Meta in March for 12 data breaches. And that 225 million fine you mentioned there in September 21 against WhatsApp, which is another unit of Meta for severe, what they described as severe privacy breaches. I mean, that's a lot of, it's a lot of fines. It's a lot of money. You know, is is it possible that Meta and its various subsidiaries have just been unlucky in this and that the GDPR regulations only came in in 2018 and we're still sort of working our way through it all? Or is there something more institutionally wrong here? <laughs> I think with this rapid accretion really of fines ever since the implementation of GDPR, um, you know, really it's only been a few years that we've had this law and we've had a, a, a lot of the, the biggest fines ever um, under GDPR have been inflicted upon uh, Meta, two of them anyway. A much larger one was the 700 million euro plus fine against Amazon made by the Luxembourg um, data protection body. But there, yeah, you would you would have to consider there seems to be a serious problem here when it's um, happening again and again, and it tends to be around these same areas of data breaches um, and inadequate protections for user data, which is required under GDPR. There is a need for there to be a certain level of built-in protection for users of services where their sensitive data could be otherwise exposed if that protection weren't there. So it's not considered an extra that you add on. It's considered something that should be integral to a service. And it begs the question, Carlin, given the amount of fines, given the breaches that the DPC has found against Meta and its various uh, units, whether or not people should be entrusting their personal data to this company. I know they're hugely popular services and, you know, in many ways our lives hang around uh, some of the services they provide. But it is a serious question to ask now, isn't it? 
Yeah, well, I mean, it always has been a serious question because data breaches have been known for a long time. You know, it took a while for the public to realize these things were happening, even though even though companies knew. I mean, for a long time, Europe didn't have particularly strong laws in this area, but neither did the U.S. or anywhere else. And it was really only because um, California quite early on in the 2000s brought in a state law that required that companies had to notify any California citizen of a data breach, no matter where that com- if that company had a breach that affected somebody from the state. And suddenly people were getting these notifications that their data had been exposed and it really began to reveal how um, serious a problem this was and, and that these were breaches that affected millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people. So yeah, there's a, there's, there are many serious questions about how you address this effectively. The reality is that, you know, in the, certainly since the advent of social media and well before that, we haven't really had a privacy by design approach for coding a lot of the times and that they're, that um, universities really give kind of scant attention to teaching computer engineers about factoring in safety protections when they're writing code. And then you have these situations where tech companies tend to keep adding on new things on top of old code rather than completely rewriting it. Um, Windows being the really famous example of that, you know, way, way, way down under layers and layers and layers of, of what had turned into a hugely bloated operating system um, was this um, ancient code and so you're a lot of a lot of people wouldn't even know how to address the problems that might be created by very old code that's hidden away in these ways so um there's there's clearly a need for stronger education around this um and 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 these kind of big penalties on companies Although the question, of course, is whether they're adequate given how huge and how powerful the companies are and the, um, and the revenue streams that they get of, of, from basically monetizing the user data that, that they're not adequately protecting in the first place. So, um, and, and the issue has certainly um, been raised about whether companies just simply factor in what are often just um, slaps on the hand, as huge as these sums seems to us. They they may only be a, a tiny proportion of the turnover in one year. And so they can, um, and we know, for example, that one of the big fines that Facebook had before and that the you know, the company was bracing for when it was announced in the US, their, their share prices, you know, went up. Because it was seen as being, ah, that's fine, you know, it's it's only so many million and that's manageable within, you know, we don't really think that even dents the viability of the company and our um, profits, that its profits and therefore the benefits to shareholders, you know, which is really astonishing when you consider these fines might now total half half a billion dollars or euros. Well, yeah, it's over 900 million euros in the case of these four fines in Europe. Is is that kind of figure something that makes Mark Zuckerberg sit up and take notice? Because uh, most of this is his money, let's face it. Yeah, well, well, I think it's a, an interesting point for this very large fine um, 
this week to have been announced on top of these other fines. When you're looking at an accumulation of nearly a billion in fines for a company whose revenue nearly halved in you know the recent um, earnings conversations, uh, you know, or it's a, a recent earning reports. Zuckerberg has struggled to defend the directions that he's taken Meta towards his this notion of the metaverse and the massive spending that has gone towards something that users haven't really embraced, and um, and where it would seem it would be quite difficult for Meta long term to control entirely anyway and monetize in the way they have a um, Facebook itself, say, or a WhatsApp or an Instagram. So one billion when you've had maybe four billion knocked off your revenue stream in a year is is probably an attention getting amount of money to have to pay. But I think it still remains in the you know in the balance to be seen whether that's just seen as okay, this is this once off set of penalties, but we'll steam ahead. And really, we can see in the history of all these big tech companies, the Amazons, the Googles, the Twitters, the, you know, the Facebooks, um, that they're quite willing to, even if, if phrased generously, push the boundaries of what is acceptable or even legal, or to even, um, there's plenty of evidence of knowingly going beyond what should be considered legal in order to make profits today and where you might kind of get the the corporate equivalent of the um, uh, planning permission granted after the fact of having added your illegal extension, for example. <laughs> That's really what a lot of them do. They just go ahead and do what they want to do and then they hope they can sort of patch things up. But by that point, they've achieved what they want to achieve. Sure. Now, finally, you mentioned... There has been some criticism of Helen Dixon and the Data Protection Commission for the length of time it takes uh, for these investigations and for some of the the size of fines that they've uh, issued as well. And of course, the DPC is a very important role as a pan-European regulator because most of these big tech companies have their European headquarters in Ireland. And um, I think on her side, she would say, well, look, I don't have the resources that the big tech companies have. Um, and these are complex uh, cases that need to be investigated. And, um, you know, they're relatively new rules as well, as, as you mentioned earlier. So how would you score Helen Dixon and the DPC at this stage, uh, four years on from GDPR? A disappointing score, I suppose. I would say down in sort of the the um, C plus, B minus, you know, moving into maybe B minus range on some of these things. I think it's taken, I, th- I think... I think the criticism is correct that that the the offices move very slowly or or taken very procedurally long um, journeys in order to achieve an object which the arguably a data protection commissioner has the power um, to 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 take the decision his or herself on some of these issues or say for referrals to the European Court of Justice and let the companies hash it out if the um and take take the case themselves to the ECJ rather than running it through a slow process of referrals in Irish courts that is expensive for the taxpayer for example it's a burden on on us to to take these I, I would argue more questionable Roots. It's also embarrassing, frankly, to have like the the WhatsApp fine was initially just fifty million 
euro, which is which is tiny, especially when what um, they're accused of doing in this data share is a straightforward violation of the with the limits that. Facebook and WhatsApp would have agreed to during Facebook's acquisition of WhatsApp in you know under the EU terms in the first place. So um 50 million is such a tiny slap on the hand for companies making this much money and um and it doesn't send a very strong signal of a value placed on user data I would think either and the and other the other um Several other European data prote- protection officials questioned this, and therefore it went to the. Um, it actually w- w- was sent on to the European Data Protection Board, the oversight body. I think that's probably one of the more embarrassing, um, uh, you know, own goals for the DPC here. That said, this has been an underfunded body since its um, initial implementation. It is routinely ignored. Um, um, and shrugged off by government departments, even the government departments that um, say they are backing the DPC. You know, on one hand, you'll have the government saying, but we are supporting the DPC, and yet there's other departments that um, constantly challenge the DPC's own decision and thus undercut her profile or, in the past, his profile internationally if you are arguing that, oh, you should impose these fines on um, the companies you oversee that are multinationals, but your decision on behalf of, say, the public services card, our own big projects, well, we don't agree with that. And so we either refuse to comply or we challenge the decision or we inflict virtually no consequences on individuals within departments who have been found to, say, leak information to tabloid newspapers. So um, there's a, a broader problem than just how the DPC functions. I mean, on, so yes, funding is, is an issue. Implementation is an issue. I think right now that it's quite a sloppy um uh, you know, it's 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 a, been a long, a sloppy construction that hasn't been properly implemented. Where they need to bring in this three-person commission rather than just a single DPC, and it's been slow to happen. And they seem to be inside people who are appointed the commissioners. Whereas I would argue you need somebody entirely outside um, the existing um, government and official and DPC structure, so that you aren't getting. A kind of a, a, a regulatory capture, or the same people looking at the same things with the same mindset, and I think there's um, data protection um, um, experts internationally have also criticized decisions taken. So I don't think there's it's I don't think it's fair just to say we need to take ages to make these decisions and we need to consult carefully. Although, of course, when you're implementing um, a massive new EU-wide regulation like GDPR, you also need to take care in how that is done. But I just think the balance has not been right there under this particular DPC. Carla Lennon, thank you for joining us. Welcome, thank you. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Joe Brennan and Carla Lillington. The show was produced by Adrian Finnegan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day.
I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. 